Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast with me, Vas Christodoulou. This is a show about people who think big. And before we begin, I'd love to introduce you to a new podcast series that shares that mandate. It's called Now Then 10. It's hosted by Facebook's VP for EMEA, Nicola Mendelssohn, and the co-founder of LastMinute.com and Founders Forum, Brent Hoberman. The series explores how the world's most influential communities, from global movements to Gen Z brands, come to life. Nicola and Brent will ask the driving forces behind these communities to share the secrets of their success. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever good podcasts are found. At How To Academy, we love nothing more than pairing exciting artists and thinkers from different fields together inspiring rich and unique conversations, whether in real life or in live streams. This week on the podcast, we're going to share one of those conversations with you. George the Poet spoke to one of the world's most influential economists, Mariana Mazzucato of University College London, to find out about her new book, Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. I hope you enjoy it. Just to give a bit of context, uh, a couple of years ago, I was one year into the production of my podcast, Have You Heard George's Podcast, when a friend of mine, Tanya Moti, a very special friend, uh, reached out to me and said, you've got to talk to my friend Mariana. We met up for um, drinks at the pub at the time, back when the world was open. And um, I just sketched out my ideas to Mariana about music, specifically black music, specifically rap music. I felt like rap came from a shared experience, the shared lived um, histories of African people across the world. And with that shared experience came a particular storytelling form. As many of you will know, rap music is now bigger than rock and roll commercially. It brings in billions of dollars every year. Unfortunately, the financial rewards from this world and uh, really the social returns that should be coming in to the communities that continuously propel this form, they just don't reflect the um, investment that these communities make. So I sketched this out to Mariana. This is the first time I've been able to speak to an economist about my ideas. And just my luck, this happens to be the, the leading, or if, uh, if not the leading, one of the foremost thinkers 
in how to redefine capitalism, how to redefine the role of the public sector, the history of public investment in this uh, economic system. I just happened to be talking to this person over casual drinks in a pub, courtesy of Tanya Moti. So um, on us uh, talking and realizing the overlap in our thinking, Mariana explained to me that, look, she set up this Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose with uh, UCL specifically to look at how the public space can be used to play a real role in driving innovation, in looking at how to pull together different sectors, different stakeholders in um, society to pursue a common goal. And um, I'm glad to announce that we are now embarking on my PhD with um, the Institute for (laughs) Innovation and Public Purpose. So it's just been um, a a, a great journey with Mariana for the past couple of years up to this point. But it's even more inspirational to know that Mariana is just getting started. So on that note, we introduce (laughs) Mission Economy, a moonshot guide to changing capitalism. Mariana, how do you feel? So first of all, I feel like we need to celebrate. I think this is the first time we've announced you're doing a PhD with us, George. <laughs> Let's just talk about that. Forget the book. <laughs> Let's talk about your PhD proposal. I'm going to hijack this. <laughs> so first of all, I am so honored uh, to be on screen with you. And thank you to the How To Academy. I feel that people like you, and you're incredibly exceptional, George, and I know you know that. I'm sure many people tell you that. But this approach to rethinking capitalism, which in this book I call the mission approach, needs to be nested in a real understanding of what's actually happening in people's lives. And we especially need to get rid of the old dichotomy where you have, you know, people talking about innovation, entrepreneurship. By the way, George has an amazing entrepreneurship video everyone should watch. You know, so entrepreneurship, innovation and on one side. And then the other side, you have people worried about inequality, rightly so, because it's bad. Uh, social services, and basically social problems, right? So innovation here, social problems there. And what I'm trying to do in the book is to say, look, why don't we treat with the equivalent amount of urgency our social problems? And let's start from the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which are global. It's really a global conversation of what social problems we have and apply this new approach, which is an outcomes-based, purpose-driven, mission-oriented approach to those problems, but not in a top-down way, as the moon landing was, but in a real kind of bottom-up way, getting all sorts of different actors to the table to even talk about what are our problems and what does it look like to have a purpose-driven, outcomes-based, mission-oriented approach. And so talking to you and talking, by the way, to the uh, people involved in the Camden Renewal Commission, so both George and I live in London, Camden is a council in London. The leader of Camden Council, Georgia Gould, set up this wonderful Camden Renewal Commission that I chair with her. We wanted to bring in people who we knew had not only experience, but had a real willingness to talk about how we can create wealth in a different way and how we can distribute that wealth in a different way. So the first thing I just want to say, and I'll shut up now, is I am so honored that you joined the Camden Renewal Commission, which is probably the most local context where we are currently trying to implement this mission-oriented approach. Thank you. Thank you very much for bringing in Camden uh, Renewal Commission as well. It's been um, an educational journey. So let's just take a step back because you do some scene setting at the start of this book. You explain 
the COVID pandemic has obviously given us a much pause for thought in terms of the um, role of the state in uh, times like this where innovation is needed rapidly to get on top of the COVID crisis. So maybe we can start start from there, looking at the times that we're in, in the context of COVID, what is there to rethink in terms of how our expectations of government? Sure. Thanks for that, because that's a really important, I think, question. And so, you know, first of all, it's, it's not the first time that government is investing and spending massively. It tends to do that anytime there's a crisis. And one of the points of the book is, why do we only get our acts together in a crisis? <laughs> and it's not going to work, because by definition, if the years before the crisis, we were kind of doing things wrongly, then it's going to be really hard to, in emergency mode, solve the problems. And so in the financial crisis, which, you know, 2007, 2008, the financial crisis, which is a global financial crisis, which began basically in the financial sector, but quickly spilled over to every other part of the economy, governments stepped in globally, some more than others. But what they did, which I think currently, luckily, is not being done, is they just filled the system with liquidity <laughs> to basically save the capitalist system from falling apart. Most of that money went back to the financial sector. That's actually true in also normal times, something like just in the UK, 80% of finance ends up back in some form of finance. So finance, insurance, and real estate. The acronym, by the way, is FIRE, which is handy. <laughs> you know, our economy is on fire, not just the planet. And so what's interesting with COVID is the money that currently is being poured in globally through the different types of COVID recovery funds is at least in principle trying to reach the real economy, right? So health services, the vaccine, furlough schemes, different types of recovery packages, also helping the businesses that are currently really hurting from big businesses like airlines that aren't flying because of the travel restrictions to, again, the people who, you know, can't go to work and so would, without stimulus packages, really be hurting even more than they currently are. And they are all hurting in different ways. And so this is already a big difference, right? So attention to making sure that public funds are actually helping people instead of just saving, you know, capitalism, bailing out the banks and then forgetting to kind of direct those funds. And that I think is just something we should pause and remember is a good thing, right? Because we can also, as you know, I probably will list a lot of bad things. In Europe, by the way, forget Brexit, let's pretend we're all, you know, in this wonderful European uh, <laughs> um, uh, continent. Europe right now is also undergoing a massive change. You might remember that in the financial crisis, the conditions that were set for the different European countries in order to access their European recovery funds, the conditions was austerity, right? You might remember that Greece also rebelled. There was Yanis Varoufakis, who I think just did a how-to academy uh, event, who was at the time finance minister, who said, this is not the way to help us recover. And yet the European Union, unfortunately, along with some other big global actors like the World Bank and the IMF, kind of kept to that old style Washington consensus mode, which is, hey, we have a problem. But if you want us to solve it, <laughs> you know, the condition is cut your public budget. Again, this is not what we have now. So this is the opportunity space that's been opened. In Europe currently, a recovery fund, which is just less than 1 trillion euros, trillion, that's 12 zeros, is conditional, not on austerity, but on different member states within the European Union to actually have a strategy around digitalization, digital divide issues, 
and climate change. There's also a health package separate to that. So again, big change, right? So what, what I argue in the book and this kind of lands it on the, on the COVID moment is that that's great, but guess what? If we don't actually have a framework, a capacity, the tools on the ground to take advantage of what really in some ways is and could be you know, a Marshall Plan kind of moment, a New Deal kind of moment, then this will be wasted, right? So can we use these, this massive amount of injection of liquidity and finance that's going into the system, again, at different levels, there's many countries that maybe aren't reacting enough, but let's just assume that there is this attempt to confront the COVID challenge. Can we use that as a moment to reflect, can we work together in a different way? You know, can we, for example, with the bailouts that are going to many different types of companies, make sure that within the contract, within the bailout condition, there's really the building back better mode. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting there is that some countries have done it, or at least tried. So in France, um, President Macron, he said, we're not here just to save companies, we want to help transform them. Mm -hmm. So he put some conditions attached to the auto industry. So Renault, you'll know, is a, is a, is a partly state-owned um, car company, Air France, partly state-owned airline company. He said, here's a bailout package for you because you're hurting in the COVID moment. But you know what? You'll only access it if you commit to lowering your carbon emissions. Mm-hmm. In Denmark and Austria, they also said, here's a COVID recovery plan, but you have to stop using tax havens. And Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren in the US argued that we should only be providing Uh, bailouts to companies that promise to actually then inject that money into good things, whether it's, you know, worker training programs and not just buying back their own stocks, right? So I just think that this is the conversation we're currently having, and we didn't have this in the financial crisis. And so what does it mean to normalize this discussion? So it's not just in the emergency, but we really say, hey, what if it was always like that? You know, public investment coming in, but the way that the public and private work together was always with that long run view of the kind of economy we're trying to build, one that has less inequality, one that is more sustainable, and that that becomes at the center of the system instead of just the peripheral you know, um, objectives around mm-hmm. inequality and so on. You know, it's fascinating. Every aspect of what you describe comes up in general conversation in my life. People, I was just talking to some friends the other day about um, African politics, my African friends, different. I'm from Uganda. Uganda's had a very problematic election in the past um, 10 days or so. On your birthday. And um, on my birthday, 11 days ago, actually. And um, we were talking about the appetite that African leaders would have to have to reject tribalism and to find a different way of doing things. And my friend made a really good point. He's like, until we um, inherit leaders or find leaders that want that change, it's, it's very hard to enact some sort of grassroots consensus. So to go back to your argument about the mission economy and how purpose and social good, public good can be baked into the um, kind of uh, policies day. and strategies that um, government pursue, how do you envision reaching that consensus? I mean, you've mentioned the SDGs as a global framework for us to start looking at and working with, which is funny because like when I left my label, which was um, 2015, I I left my record label and I specifically told them I didn't want to continue to create music without an agenda. The first agenda I landed on as an independent artist was the Sustainable Development Goals. 
but these are not compulsory. They're not binding. They're not, yeah. you know, legally compelling. How do you find that framework at, at a governmental level and at an international level? It's a really good question. Um, so maybe I should just pause one minute and make sure that the vocabulary I'm using is, is understood because I think the concept of missions can be used in different ways. Can I just spend literally 60 seconds, time me, George. I'm going to do a 60 second definition of what I mean by missions and then I'm going to answer your question so that I'm Good sure time. that the, uh, yeah, okay, go. Are you ready? <laughs> so what missions, what I mean by the mission approach is that you start with the challenge. This is an example of a challenge, climate change. There's a whole SDG just related to climate, but you turn it into a very concrete goal, like this was for Europe, achieving 100 carbon neutral cities by 2030, right? And then the idea is that you do it in such a way that gets as many different sectors involved. So instead of having a top-down sectoral approach, randomly listing three or four sectors you want to target, AI, life sciences, or whatever, all your sectors from digital, mobility, nutrition get involved. And the bottom-up circles are different projects from citizen carbon ID, carbon neutral, urban food industry, and so on. And so the question you just asked, did I do that in less than 60 seconds? You did. It's 57 seconds, 58. Yay! Okay. <laughs> okay. So now time's up. Now I'm going to answer your question. The real question is who decides on the mission, right? So the moon landing and the whole Apollo program that I talk about in the book was definitely top down, right? So the answer is it wasn't like this big citizen engagement, should we or should we not go to the moon? But what was interesting was that because it was very inspirational, including how it was communicated, it ended up catalyzing so much activity across many different sectors, nutrition, electronics, materials, and so on. And a lot of people literally globally would look at the sky and dream, right? Yeah. They were reimagining all sorts of things that their future might be characterized by. But the interesting thing about the Apollo program was really the innovation that occurred. And I have a, oh, two pages where I talk about all the spillovers that occurred from that. So, you know, even the internet that we have today didn't come out of people worrying about the internet. It was a solution to a problem, getting the satellites to communicate. And so many of the big innovations that we all benefit from in our iPhones actually came out of problem solving between public and private. But your question is so important because today's challenges, on the one hand, I really truly believe, let's not think that from scratch. We have the 17 goals. They were agreed on by almost every, well, actually every country in the world from Uganda UK, Italy, Brazil, signed up to it, but it has to then land locally. It doesn't make any sense just to keep it really broad. Mm -hmm. So the missions themselves, which are the more concrete targets, you know, bold, ambitious, that catalyze lots of intersectoral interactor innovation, that needs to be an outcome, I believe, personally, of a discussion of citizen engagement locally. So that's, for example, with the Camden Renewal Commission that you and I are engaging with. One of the hardest things I think that we're going to be doing is how to bring together uh, citizens and the local council and some of the academics involved to talk about the problems, right? So whether it's knife crime in London, whether it's issues around social housing, whether it's the lack of youth centers and when they do exist, people don't actually even want to go to them because they just haven't been resourced or even imagined properly. How do you create new structures like citizen assemblies mm. or cooperatives or whatever that bring together those different voices. And I think, you know, it's not just the COVID moment we're living through right now. It's also a moment of a revived, a revival of movements. There's the Black Lives Matter movement. There's Fridays for the Future movement. 
there's currently a whole movement of care workers, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, making pretty damning statements about what they see as a crisis of care. Mm -hmm. So how do you bring movements to the table in a non-tokenistic way, you know, mm -hmm. instead of just patting Greta Thornburg on the head at Davos, how do we bring, you know, her thinking, her movement, her colleagues, and the global movement that she's really inspired to the table when, say, a mayor of a city is interested in a climate agenda. Right. That bit there is really hard, also because civil servants haven't been really trained, as most people haven't been trained, in kind of empathy 101, listening. <laughs> right. A lot of what you're just describing now is the question of storytelling. Now, in The Value of Everything, you talk a lot about narratives. You talk about um, value makers and value takers mm -hmm. and how economic thought and the teaching of economic thought has carried on ideas about where value is created and perpetuated the idea that value comes from one corner of life where the clever people do business and economics things and academia away from the masses. And you kind of flip that on its head and you say, well, look, it's a, it's a collaborative process. Value comes from all sorts of places. And that all is a question of storytelling. So just speak to that. What role do you think the public conversation has in pulling together the movements, bringing them to one conversation table and establishing the common ground to form um, a really a direction of travel? I think it's hugely important. And that's, again, why I'm so excited to work with you, George, because I have only to learn about that. Um, my own experience is, is very limited in terms of the real life kind of action storytelling. I mean, mm. I've done it within economics. And so in the value of everything, what I argue is that, you know, it's quite striking that after the financial crisis, you had the head of uh, Goldman Sachs, Larry Blankfein, saying that Goldman Sachs workers are the most productive in the world. And he was saying in a very serious way, it wasn't like an after dinner talk where he was trying to make people laugh. And he's right, how we actually measure value in the economy means that it's sort of tautological. We confuse price with value. That's what the whole book on value is about. And so just because you're earning a lot of money, we assume, oh, that means that you're also producing a lot of value. So what we include in GDP is restricted, for example, to what actually has a price. And that's why a public servant, like a school teacher, even if she or he were very confident, <laughs> uh, which unfortunately they're often not because by bashing away at some of the structures that also kind of hurt sometimes your confidence, but even those that are very confident, they actually can't say we are the most productive in the world using national statistics because we don't even know how to measure the output of what they're doing. A well-structured, well-resourced, well-imagined public education system, we know how to calculate the costs, right? The cost mm. of the school teacher, because mm. there's a price to it, but the actual value, say, of a public education system, which is free because it doesn't have a price, we, don't, we still, in the modern age, don't know how to properly value it in GDP. Anyway, that's sort of a more in the accounting but what I argue in the book is that there's something like performativity. It's what sociologists call performativity. How we measure something isn't neutral. It then feeds back into the stories we tell about that thing, right? So how you measure even the performance of, say, academics were measured all the times based on our research rankings and other things that feeds back into what we think we need to be doing. So this feedback effect that we have around the wrong, not just stories, but economic framings of where value comes from has fed back into where we think value is actually happening. And so, you know, we both need different metrics and accounting and new economic theory. But what I love about your work is that it's also about 
you know, really engaging with a very different uh, understanding and also discussion with the people that we think have been most left behind that are value creators, but just don't even see themselves as that because society doesn't see themselves as value creators and actually rethinking the structures, including the business models. And this is why some of the work that we're doing in the Institute in Spain and a particular region of Spain called the Biscay region has been so interesting. They have a big history of cooperatives. Um, so Mondragon is one of the largest cooperatives in the world. There's 87,000 workers who work in it. And it's a cooperative in the same way that say John Lewis is, right? Which is a retail uh, company here in the UK. So workers benefit from the profits. They share in the profits created. And we've been talking to them about, well, what does it mean not just to share in the profits that are created, but to share in the voice that you're given and where the company's even going to go? Mm -hmm. Or more broadly, the region that you live in, if it's going to undergo what many regions are talking about, a green transition, who's deciding what's green? Mm -hmm. Is it just a top-down process where academics and policymakers and a couple of businesses come in? Or is your voice, mm -hmm. the workers' voice and the citizens' voices and different movements, their voices, do you have a way to do that in a cooperative uh, uh, structure? And that's what I, again, love about your work that very early on when we were talking, we discussed the need not to think about different business models in a cooperative kind of model for the profits that are generated from hip hop and rap, you know, trillion dollar industry globally to be reinvested back into the different structures, whether it's social yeah. housing, art centers that are creating that resource in the first place. 100%. I mean, there's something distinctly hopeful about everything, every part of your reasoning. And as someone who follows your argument, I keep being pleasantly rewarded and feeling like, yeah, it's, it's, you, you know, you're not just dreaming. You are someone who has lived your arguments and who has landed on conclusions and followed the thread to where you are now. But it also seems like you're theorizing in real time. Can you just speak to that? What's that like? Yeah, well, first of all, it's hard. I, I said the other day to someone about this book, I said, it's almost like you're giving birth and I've you know, given birth to four babies that you're writing a book on mothering while you're giving birth. <laughs> it's like, that wouldn't work. <laughs> so, I mean, the reason I found it inspirational is that the methodology actually within the Institute that I've set up to experiment with these ideas very much goes to the core of that, which is to be humble to yes, we have no ideas. There's a lot of kind of thought leadership on the concepts like public value, public purpose, a mission oriented approach and different aspects of rethinking the economy. But then in trying to implement it, you learn it's hard. You know, if I think back to the work we did in Scotland, setting up a mission oriented public bank with the idea, look, the problem in the UK is not finance. There's plenty of finance. There's just not enough patient <laughs> long-term finance. So in, in setting up that bank and making sure it wasn't just a handout machine, but again, mission-oriented, we discovered all sorts of, you know, uh, problems and issues and really interesting questions that were coming our way. So the first thing is to say, okay, then you should pause, listen, learn, and bring it back to the theory, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a real feedback, what we call practice-based theorizing, right? So in trying to implement ideas, you practice them, you, you work with people, you don't just, you know, preach and say, austerity sucks, invest. Well, what the hell does that mean? You know, let's do it together around different types of institutional, organizational and policy tools. You discover all the things you didn't know, the difficult stuff, the kind of, you know, hanging out your dirty laundry kind of mode and bring it back to the theory. 
and, and that constant feedback between theory and practice, but also the training, a big part of our institute is to say, actually, it's not just about better policy. We need a new mindset, right? What does it mean to think of civil servants really co-creating value with citizens, with businesses? What are the new tools you need on the ground? You know, what does it mean for designing procurement grants and loans in a different way? What does it mean for your own dynamic capabilities within a public organization? Those don't exist, <laughs> right? So that requires a new curriculum. And that's another big thing that we're trying to do in the Institute, which is a whole new curriculum around really the global public service, which by the way, in Africa, where I'm currently working in different countries, including in South Africa, where I'm a um, advisor to the president Ramaphosa through a council, this is a huge issue, right? Because when you have weak states, right? And sometimes also afflicted by corruption. And by the way, I'm from Italy. Lots of, uh, I think we taught the world how to do corruption. So this is not, uh, you know, just different parts of the world. Lots of different parts of the world mm -hmm. undergo this. But what I've encountered in Africa is that they say, oh, but our state is really weak. We have corruption. We have capture. So probably it's better to leave, you know, X thing to say the World Bank or to a consulting company. And a big mm -hmm. thing is to say, well, no, you know, hesitate before you do that. Ask yourself, what would it look like to have a more capable state? A state that actually is able to work in a dynamic way across different you know, actors in society and even to understand its own ownership, right? Because in many countries, you might have state ownership of say the energy sector, mm -hmm. but it's just kind of ownership for the sake of ownership and it sits in place. It's not about transform uh, transformation, mm -hmm. right? So what does it look like to actually own, say, an energy company, but to own it in such a way that's governed towards transformation of that sector and towards a renewable, say, transition for a country, an energy transition? That posits so many interesting questions that if you don't undergo it and force your own organization to undergo that process and you just outsource that to a consulting company or to the private sector or whatever, you really then stay in place. There's no change in your own way of imagining the state. Right. But really, I mean, the main answer here is the practice-based theorizing bit, which requires you to be humble. That's not something that academics tend to be good at. We like to preach, write papers and say, this is the policy conclusion. We yeah. don't let ourselves say, oh my God, I'm completely wrong. I've just discovered that what I was talking about is much harder. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shankar, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But that's what makes it so fascinating that you work with governments, intergovernmental organizations, international organizations, whether that's your recent new council with the World Health Organization. Congratulations on that. Thank Looking you. at the economic health of countries and thinking about that differently, or whether that's your work with the EC, the, U the UN in different capacities. You work with a range of actors and you are doing this practice-based theorizing all the way. So it's like you're running real-time conversations that are experimental in nature, but really um, rigorous and really consequential. That that just that blows my mind every time I, I I think about it, and every time you text me, I'm like, how does she have the time to text? What is your life? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yes, but it is. Um, it's, so is that as 
grandiose as it looks? Is it as expansive as it looks? That's the word I'm looking for. It is, but if I and my team also were doing that everywhere, we'd have a nervous breakdown, right? Also, because we're not a huge team. Um, so what we've been doing is kind of picking the willing, okay? So in mm. certain countries where the front door was opened, especially by prime ministers, presidents, whether it's President Ramaphosa in South Africa, first minister of Scotland, currently working with the Italian government with um, Prime Minister Conte, what's really interesting is when you can, you know, start from the top because you're like, okay, are we really going to bring this, these lessons we're going to learn to the center, you know, get your finance ministry to change. But as soon as that door opens, you go straight down and work with, you know, and don't think of it in a hierarchical term, but literally just in terms of getting your hands really dirty with the everyday, right? So that ability to start kind of small and to say, okay, in this country, we're going to really focus on this issue, say, of public banking or, or, or public wealth funds. And another country may be on the whole issue of how do you redesign procurement to catalyze bottom-up innovations to solve really important public problems. Mm. And again, if, if, if you then learn from that, then you can start saying, what would it look like to scale up those lessons at that next level and then at that other level until you're really talking about massive system change? And the problem is that when you just start with, that, with the system view and, and just kind of arrogantly think it's all about, you know, massive revolution and the ways that we're currently working without humbly going down the steps and, and working over two years, perhaps. That's how long it took, two years of serious work in Scotland, as well as two years in the European Commission before we really were able to have any impact in learning from the kind of trial and error process and the experimentation. By the way, Roosevelt, in, in, the last in the second to last chapter in the book, I talk about his, what he wrote about in terms of the need to experiment, mm. that you needed to really drive systems change around the New Deal with the willingness to have that kind of trial and error and experimentation. I think that's the bit that's really important. But what we've tried to do is to work globally, but in a very concrete way with countries, organizations, regions, or cities, sometimes when we're working with mayors, where we feel there's a willingness, hence the pick the willing, don't pick winners, pick the willing, that are willing to really engage with you in a serious way on a concrete change and then to start scaling that up. And that's why I think in Camden, it's going to be so interesting if we can, together with our commissioners, work at that level, again, around um, particular areas, whether it's social housing, uh, some of the work we're thinking about around school meals as well. Mm. School meals has become one of my obsessions both because Marcus Rashford has done us all a great, a great, in fact, George, maybe offline, let's talk about this. This is a, a goal I have is to get Marcus involved in some of this work because school meals, if you break down the value chain, the production, the mm. distribution, and the consumption, and you use it not only to do what he's done, which is so important, which is to say, fund the damn thing. You know, school meals are often the only healthy meal that, that a lot of kids in the UK have but transform that to be one of your most innovative funnels for sustainability and get right. kids involved in designing that. So that participatory, you know, make the school meal something that goes throughout the curriculum, right? And get the kids and the students of whatever age involved in both designing, but also monitoring, you know, if it's really not tasty, then forget it. Mm -hmm. But especially learning about sustainability and climate change through something that really matters to you. But anyway. Yeah. I mean, we, we could just do this forever and, and we're going to come to the Q&A section in a, in a minute. But I just wanted to return to the, to the inspiration piece, um, actually, because uh, this book is the subtitle is A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. And the whole moonshot analogy, like you said, evokes images of citizens, American citizens under Kennedy looking up at the sky and imagining what could be. 
And um, of course, we've talked about the role of narrative and getting people's imaginations open about, you know, all the possibilities, which is why Marcus Rashford has been so influential at this time. Mm. You have put yourself in situation to pick the willing to work with the leaders out there who are open to your ideas and you have rolled out different kinds of ideas in different environments. Is there a consistent takeaway for you from what has maybe worked or where where the consistent challenges come up in the challenge of changing capitalism? Very deep question, and I'd have to think about it to come up with a, a smarter answer than what I'm about to say. But one of the deepest things that I have experienced globally, basically since I wrote The Entrepreneurial State, which was back in 2013, that there's an incredible crisis of confidence. I used to joke that I'd walk into meetings with civil servants. I remember in particular once in Canada as an economist, and I'd come out as a life coach. <laughs> I literally would have people say, you know, thank you. You make me want to go to work again. And there's something about really tackling that, which is what have we done to, to the civil service to at best make people think that they're there to fix market failures, right? At worst, it's like, get the hell out of the way. Or, or you might remember David Cameron actually said civil servants are the enemies of enterprise, mm. right? So, and, you know, broaden this out, not just to the civil service, because, you know, this really is about co-creating wealth and capitalism in a different way, but also sharing that wealth a fundamentally mm. different way. And there's something about, in the first instance, beginning with the, again, using your words, the narratives and the stories that have become so encrusted within the organizations and the people working in them, that if we don't start there, then you can get you know, the best policy you want, but it's not gonna be lasting. Mm. Similarly, you can get really good tax policy that we think is progressive, say, but if that's not nested within a different story of who we think is even creating wealth, that tax policy will go, you yeah. know, very quickly. And by the way, some of the most regressive tax policy that I've witnessed in, in, in history, like the reduction of capital gains tax by 50% in four years in the US was actually lobbied for through particular stories that were told by a particular part of the financial sector about their role in creating wealth. So if we want a more progressive agenda, more progressive economy, it has to be accompanied from a deep belief, not just a tokenistic kind of, you know, writings and speeches of, of where we think wealth is coming from. And again, that's why I'm so excited to work with you. So just off the back of that um, very well-made point, I'm going to go to the questions now. And it really, really segues perfectly from what you just said. Do you see the current push for corporate social responsibility as productive for changing the system? How do we ensure companies go beyond rhetoric and box ticking to bring about actual change in how businesses relate to society? Thank you for that question. And today, one of the sessions I was doing for the book was for the opening session of Davos, the World Economic Forum event dedicated this year, but also some of the previous years to stakeholder capitalism. And, you know, I think on the one hand, I'm optimistic that fact that it's even being talked about as much as it is purpose at the center of the company instead of maximizing shareholder value, maximizing stakeholder value, and so on. But until I see real change in the most concrete places like today with the health pandemic, do we really see, say, big pharma, the big pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, which is one of the companies that have come up with the vaccine, willing to operate in a fundamentally different way across their whole value chain? Mm -hmm. So beyond ESG metrics, which are seen as just kind of a reporting 
uh, a thing or corporate social responsibility is purpose at the center and stakeholder value at the center of how Pfizer currently is thinking and investing in the vaccine? And unfortunately, I think the answer is no. Partly, partly yes. I mean, just the fact they're investing in a vaccine, that's great. And there's lots of public money going into the Pfizer vaccine, as well as the Oxford AstraZeneca one. But it's not just about the money. How do we govern a process, production and innovation towards a common good or public good? That means changing the status quo, changing how we govern intellectual property rights. And this is why the World Health Organization and Dr. Tedros, who is from Ethiopia, who I'm working with on the council, it's, it's really important what he's saying, which is we need collective intelligence. We need to have a patent pool for all the vaccine technology. And if companies aren't willing to sign up to that, then stop talking about purpose. Right. Thank you for that. We've got another question here. What argument or truism annoys you the most when you see economists speak on radio or TV? Hmm. <laughs> well, um, there's a couple. The first is, of course, or not, of course, the first is when we compare government budgets with household budgets. You know, yes, of course, it's important to put in all this money now, but then we better start cutting because we need to tighten our belt so we can pay back mm-hmm. the money. That's just a completely false narrative, using your words, story and framing of the economy, because governments aren't the same thing as a household, which doesn't mean that you should just spend, spend, spend and not worry about it. But we really need to also make sure that we're informing, you know, the common citizen of what actually matters. So I'm from Italy. We have a very high debt to GDP ratio, for example. That's not because the government spent too much. It's because the denominator GDP hasn't been growing. Productivity hasn't been growing. And often that's because the public sector hasn't been doing its job in terms of investing in all the things we know matter for long term growth. So even with a mild deficit, the numerator, the denominator, if it's not moving, then the numerator of a, over a zero growth denominator, in theory, the ratio can go to infinity. And just even something as basic as that, just remembering that when zero is in the denominator, a ratio goes to infinity and applying that to debt to GDP would be really useful in a moment like the one we're going through now, where already we're hearing both at the council level, speaking to um, Georgia, you know, this need to do burden sharing. The council's been given money, but it's going to have to give the money back because it has to share the burden with the government or you know the government already starting to say we need to be quite cautious about not necessarily continuing some programs because we can't live beyond our means you know partly that's okay you you always have to be careful of, of, of what you're doing but this notion that you need to you know run a surplus or have zero deficits eventually it's just a false economic narrative and I think that's one of the main things that prevents us from talking about what really matters which is the direction of growth the direction of the investment Right. Not the quantity. So that will probably um, allow us to get a little further into that explanation with this next question. Marilyn asks, if every nation has borrowed millions because of the pandemic, who exactly are they borrowing from? And do they have to pay it back? Or are they just printing money? And if so, does it really matter? Okay, so that's that's very similar question, a good question. So first of all, it depends if you have your own sovereign currency or not. And I really recommend people read Stephanie Kelton's book, uh, The Deficit Myth, to understand some of the kind of details behind both of these two questions. She's um, an advisory board member, actually, of the Institute. So in the end, it depends what kind of country we're talking about. But for example, within Europe right now, you have a European you know, union and the different countries within it. And in theory, there could be a lot of redistribution between the different countries 
to go after a goal together in the same way that in Germany with, within a country, you have different Landes, so different regions, and the country itself has often had a redistributional kind of a debt forgiving policy in some ways in order to achieve the kind of ambitions that Germany has had. And what's quite striking is that, and, and I'm just raising these European examples because it's interesting that you have a European Union where you have Germany and other countries, including the Southern countries like Italy, Greece, and Spain, but Germany's own policy within Germany, how it thinks of its debt between the regions is very different from how it has thought about its debt compared to say, you know, a, a Greece's debt and the idea that they weren't willing for a long time, still now, to allow kind of a real redistributional policy in order to target particular goals that the European uh, Union wants to uh, mm. go after. I think it's just an interesting way to kind of unravel some of the bigger issues that then we see globally. But in the end, of course, there's large financial institutions like the IMF and so on, which have you know, been providing financial assistance to different countries, which increases their own debt to these financial institutions. And one of the things we should always be wary of is that anytime you have a debt and creditor relationship, once you then have prices change, that will affect the distribution between those countries in very different ways. And this is why these large financial institutions have always really worried about things like inflation, because if you are lending money, then the money that you have lent will be devalued with inflation. But we've all sort of been conned into thinking inflation is necessarily a bad thing when actually a mild rate of inflation has always been a natural consequence of growing in a stable way. Too much inflation is, of course, bad. But this notion, you know, inflation in our heads, of course, is always a negative thing. But that's in some ways back to the story. I don't want to say everything's about storytelling, George, but hey, I'm talking to you about how we, you know, of who's actually benefiting and who's losing out. Yeah. when you have inflation in terms of the creditor and debtor um, relationship. Uh, Elias asks, if this mission, if this mission approach, I guess, needs to be grassroots to succeed, what is the role of experts in creating this change? In the UK, experts have been demonized, even opportunistically so, by ministers who should know better. But to make real SDG impact, do we need experts? How do we close this chasm between the expert and the public? Great question. Um, you know, it's been really interesting in, in hearing Greta, who I think is now 18, as she, as she began when she was 16. She, on the one hand, has been all about a movement and a bottom-up movement, but often her slogan is, listen to the scientists, right? So I think that's a good example where it's not one or the other. It's not about just listen to the scientists. Without her movement, actually, so many people, and definitely youth around the world, but also others, wouldn't have been aware as they are of this problem, but it doesn't mean that everyone then bottom up should, you know, say what they think on the science bit. You've got, you know, the, it's very important to have also scientific institutions. It's not just science. Science doesn't exist in a vacuum. Science gets funded. There's different types of scientific institutions. Those for blue sky research, like in the United States, the National Science Foundation, or here different types of uh, research council funding, but then there's also other types of institutions that are all about linking the science to what's actually happening on the ground. So science industry linkages, for example. In the UK, this has been done through uh, Vince Cable, um, set up these catapult centers, which are modeled around, in Germany, the Fraunhofer centers, which are places where science meets business, right? So listening to the science and not demonizing experts, if, if we're interested in that, 
And I think, again, the COVID moment, as the question suggests, reminds us just how important the science has been, can't just be, again, going to the opposite extreme of saying, oh, the scientists, they must be right. We need to be questioning how does scientific knowledge actually evolve? How is it structured? How does it relate to the real economy, both in terms of business, but also in terms of government advice? And I just hope, I, I really hope that both the COVID moment and the climate change moment, which we won't have a post climate change moment, we hopefully will have a post COVID moment, really fosters a very different type of engagement where it's not about the experts versus you know, the common person in the street. It's really about a new way to think about the importance mm. of the science, but also to make sure that we're actually financing the underlying resources, but also the ways that people, coming back also to the point I made about people understanding the economy, that people can engage with science in a way that's less fearful. And you see that really with the vaccine, that even if we get the vaccine, a lot of people are fearful about it because of kind of what I would call, I guess, fake news around it, but that's just my subjective opinion. Um, but that means we need to also think very clearly about how are we communicating the benefits of a particular type of scientific endeavor to people um, you know, who, who don't necessarily have their resources or the history of even thinking about that. And I don't think we've thought about that enough. Well, I guess that um, relates to Nick's question. He asks, who determines and how do we determine what is for the public good? You mentioned before that measurement and therefore the assessment process and selection are not neutral. How do we square this so the right people make the right and rational choices according to the right measurement? Great question. God, these are smart people. <laughs> so maybe I'll give you an example of, of a project we're working on exactly that question. So the BBC is an organization which is uh, publicly financed and gets measured actually by public value metrics. And what's really interesting is that many public broadcasters around the world in theory are being measured against some sort of public notion, whether it's public interest, public good, public something. Um, and the BBC is the only organization I know that's rendered this concept of the public good and public value that in theory it should be serving into something very dynamic, right? So you'll have PBS, Public Broadcasting Service in the US, which is sort of similar to the BBC, different in terms of how it's financed, but let's just call it public broadcaster. And they have kind of bought into the idea that if you're a public broadcaster, then you do kind of you know, documentaries or high quality news and so on. But you leave things like talk shows and soap operas to business, right? That's for business and you're the public sector. So you're just fixing a problem of maybe there's too little private investment in something. Whereas the BBC, through their notion of public value, which has been debated in-house a lot inside the BBC, they've said, look, independent of the format, literally in this case, the TV format, we are going to invest in areas, including soap operas and talk shows for the public good. And so, you know, and, and that was done through, again, lots of debate inside what that meant, but the end result was they ended up producing things like EastEnders, which is a soap opera basically about the working class, very different from the soap operas like Dallas and Dynasty in the US, the old soap operas when I was young, you guys don't even know what I'm talking about, um, right? So, and, and that's about the creative arts. So a public actor in the creative arts seeing itself as, as promoting an agenda which is thought to benefit diversity, benefit our understanding of issues around inequality and so on, and seeing that as a key 
uh, uh, role of the public sector. What's so interesting when you look at it through the BBC history is because they did it quite well, the end result was ended up crowding in private sector investment in those very areas that they were pushing the boundaries on. The reason I give that example is that unfortunately, if we just think in the old way, public good, private good, it becomes like a pizza. And you know, this is for you, that's for me. This is like a good thing to do. So the government will do that because there's not a lot of private investment in it, like cleaning up our waters or basic research. And that static way of thinking of the public good as a static piece of the pie, as opposed to a dynamic process through which you are with a debate and engagement about that within any sort of a state organization, pushing the frontiers of areas that are about sustainability, diversity, equity, and so on. If you're doing it through innovation and investment towards creating and shaping new markets, not just fixing existing ones, that's been one of the most interesting stories I've seen and studied recently with the BBC. And we, we actually have a new report out. It's just come out on the BBC and public value. And unfortunately, there's not enough experiences like that. So at best, we get told, okay, the state in, in fostering the public good should invest in those areas that have, say, strong positive externalities like basic research or, or you know, defense yeah. uh, and so on. Yeah, particularly fascinating to me since I've, full disclosure, partnered with the BBC from, from my podcast for the past couple of years. And it's just been, it's just been such, it's been so interesting, my experience of working with them versus how the explosion of the conversation around their role just just interesting. very interesting um so i guess let's 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 try and end on a on a on a hopeful note it's not it's not hard to end on a hopeful note when we talk about um a mission economy so let's go to rosie's question yeah rosie are you optimistic about the future and if so what's the time frame for your optimism like how long do you think it will take for true change to happen hmm. i'm sort of an eternal optimist which then people can easily make fun of me for that but um I'm optimistic because I think that it's becoming more and more clear in many people's minds from both COVID, but even previously with climate, that the status quo is not working. Mm. And that, you know, the interesting thing with COVID, by the way, is that the one thing that I think is really resonated in people's minds is that we're only as healthy as our neighbor is. Had this crisis begun in Africa, where health systems are much weaker, actually, the welfare state is weaker than it is in China, we would all globally be worse off. So mm. I've heard in very recent, well, in recent months, a conversation about almost a global health system, global welfare state discussion mm. that I've never heard about before. So given both that COVID kind of urgency and, and, the, and the global agenda around it, and again, even with the vaccine, the fact that 80% of the vaccine doses have already been bought by rich countries, leaving so little left for poor countries, and this has become a huge global debate, the urgency to, to solve that problem is, is very strong. And that makes me hopeful, because I think that if we screw that up, we're going to have more and more, you know, pandemics. But also the climate one, what makes me really hopeful is, as I was talking about before, the movement side. We've had the science bit. I mean, just look at the literature from the 1970s. There's no lack of science talking about climate change. What we have today is a, is a much more grassroots movement behind that. So the combination of the two things that I've just mentioned make me hopeful and the whole, you know, discussion within business about purpose more than ever. Um, the fact that governments are this time around, unlike the last time around, uh, uh, directing the, the flow of finance into the economy 
all these things make me hopeful. I think we need to get our acts together within the next five years if we're going to solve the biggest crisis we're facing, which is climate. So that's the time frame that I'll give ourselves. Bye. <laughs> Ariana, thank you so much. Candid, uh, uh, relevant, on the front line, clearly, it is really uplifting to speak to you every single time. And ladies and gentlemen, Mariana is like this every single <laughs> day. This energy, this optimism, and this well-informed approach to tackling some real problems. So thank you very much. Thank you, George. It's, it's such a pleasure. And so I'm gonna text you tonight again. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And uh, everyone listen to George's podcast. I forced my whole family to, and now they actually think I'm cool. Because I feel with George. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. This week's episode starred Mariana Mazzucato and George the Poet. It was produced by myself and Luke Naylapero and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, you will find many more leading scholars thinking about the future on our website, where we have a calendar of live stream events taking you all the way through to the end of the spring. Until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening.